Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Blizzard Boy Gerasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a sober Solzhenitsyn tonight. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week we're going to be taking a crack at reading some poetry on the podcast. We're going to be reading Anna Akhmatova's Requiem, Lot's Wife, and Song of the Final Meeting. Before we get into all of that, we just wanted to give a quick shout out to two of our patrons, Jeff and Anne, who have been around for a little while, but they recently increased their Patreon tier, so thank you both for that. We also recently redesigned our Patreon tier, so go give them a look at patreon.com slash tolstoy. If you want to learn about how to get your hands on some of our sweet, sweet merch, some behind the scenes content, and maybe have Cameron host a game of Call of Cthulhu for us. Oh, I'm excited for that one. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> Patreon stuff. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? I'm drinking something that I've wanted to try for a while. I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast or just to, to you before we recorded. You have, I think. Or maybe in an outtake. I don't remember. Yeah, hard to tell at this point. Well, I'm drinking uh, peanut butter whiskey by Screwball. It's something I've wanted to try for a really long time. And as I was saying to Cameron just before the show, it literally tastes like I'm drinking peanut butter. It's a strange, strange sensation. I would like to drink peanut butter if I could. Let's do it. Um, you know, <laughs> life's short. Why not? <clears throat> yeah. What are, you, what are you drinking this week, Cameron? Well, I'm trying uh, some incredibly small batch artisan made uh, Bigelow decaf green tea. Ooh, <laughs> because... <laughs> how small batch are we talking? <laughs> uh, I think they only produce it in probably like maybe 100,000 tea bags. um yeah i didn't sleep last night because i decided to read to fall asleep and i read Mm -hmm. a module for a tabletop game that i needed to take notes on and then i was up Mm -hmm. until 6 a.m and so i got Mm -hmm. like two three hours of sleep before work so i think if i drank alcohol right now i'd be entirely incoherent within about 15 minutes uh so we're gonna drink some decaf tea and see how long the uh see how long my energy rush lasts i don't know sounds pretty spicy to me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well you enjoy being a sober solzhenitsyn and i'm sure it will come in handy for actually being coherent <laughs> uh yes because this one will be an interesting one because as we're talking about anna akhmatova's poetry we're not just going to be talking about the poetry itself but also the form of poetry obviously that's a huge feature and we both put in some work to actually read the russian this time so we can actually say something about it instead of just relying on translations, which yep. you shouldn't necessarily yep. trust just because it's there. No, you should not. But we normally do it anyways, because it's just so much quicker to read it in English, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Before we get into that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Anna Akhmatova's life. For those of you who aren't familiar with her, she was a fairly major poet throughout the late Russian Empire and early Soviet period who went through a lot of I'm going to call it interesting events in her life to put it very mildly. This is going to be a short biography. I'm going to cover three basic things, which is the biography of Akhmatova herself, uh, a history of Petersburg, and uh, talking a little bit about the purges in the 1930s. And these will be relating to the three poems we're reading today. So Akhmatova was actually born Anna Andreevna Gorenka in a suburb of Odessa in what is now modern-day Ukraine. Uh, She was the daughter of a Ukrainian naval engineer, and also her mother was the descendant of some old Ukrainian royalty, essentially. When she was about 11 months old, her family moved to Tsarskaya Selo, which is a small town right outside of Petersburg, uh, and that was more or less the area that she would inhabit for most of the rest of her life. 
Akhmatova began writing poetry relatively early on. I read at about age 11, and she began to be published, actually, in her late teens. However, her father uh, was not super big on his name being associated with poetry because he thought it was a respectable name, so Akhmatova chose the surname of her grandmother, uh, which is, had a notably Tartar bent, which is how she goes from Anna Gorienka to Anna Akhmatova. She stayed in Tsarskaya Selo for most of the rest of her teenage years, the exception of late high school and law school, which she moved to Kiev for before eventually returning to Petersburg to finish up her degree in literature. I like that law school for Russians at this time and apparently all time was the equivalent of what it is for people today in the U.S. where it's like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll just go to law school. <laughs> I think that was just directly out of secondary or high school, too. You didn't even need to make four years of financial mistakes before you went there. Yeah, and you don't even really need to do that today. I mean, what does it really do? <laughs> <laughs> so in her younger years, Akhmatova was noted for writing a lot about introspection, romantic things, stuff like that. This was later used as a sort of a derisive jab at her by later Soviet critics, and even actually Akhmatova herself in some of her writings. It was around this era in the early 20th century that she wrote Song of the Final Meeting. Actually, that was written in 1911. It was her 200th poem, which for age 22 is really good. And uh, out of those 200 poems, only 35, because Anna Akhmatova was a very discerning <laughs> uh, critic of her own poetry, was included in the book that was released that year. It was about this time that she was also getting married to her first husband, Nikolai Gumilev, uh, with whom she had a son two years later in 1912, Lev. Lev will come to play a pretty important role later in life. And things are going pretty well for her at this point. She's rising in popularity. She is very, very well connected in the Petersburg literary establishment. She becomes very close friends with a lot of the biggest names at the time, Ossip Mandelstam, Boris Pasternak, and Bloch. However, this is kind of derailed by the start of World War I. Leading up to the war, Akhmatova was writing poetry, which reflected kind of darkly on where she saw this going. And she was largely right. Russia, of course, from 1914 to 1917 was in, engulfed in a bloody stalemate against Germany, which just was a good time for absolutely no one, except, I guess, if you were the Bolsheviks looking for a good opportunity. That being said, I'm going to take a quick deviation here and talk about the history of Peter Petro Leningrad. So, Petersburg has gone by three names through its lifetime. When it was first constructed in the early 18th century, it was given the name Sankt Petersburg, uh, which is, as you might notice, not actually a Russian name, but rather German. Uh, the entire city of Petersburg, or Peter, was basically constructed as an attempt by Peter the Great in order to create a truly European city. Uh, so it was built in more of a European style. It was given a German name. It was not actually named after him, but rather St. Peter. Uh, although... Allegedly. <laughs> really yeah. convenient to pick a saint that has the same name as you, don't you think? <laughs> so yeah, allegedly it's for the saint. So it's a deliberately foreign name. And that changes about 200 years later in 1914. At this point, obviously, Russia is going to war with Germany now, and they're not super big on German things. So this is basically like a, you know, a 20th century version of us renaming French fries to Freedom Fries because France wouldn't invade Iraq with us. <laughs> and so they renamed uh, Sankt Petersburg to Petrograd, which is a much more Russian name, Grad being the Russian equivalent of, of Burg and removing Sankt altogether. That only what lasted for about nine years until the Soviets won the 
Civil War and renamed the city to Leningrad in honor of, obviously, Vladimir Lenin, which was the name that it would carry until 1991, after the Soviet Union had dissolved, and through referendum, the city of Petersburg decided to rename itself Sankt Petersburg again. Now, this is important because uh, <laughs> Leningrad, or Petersburg, or Petrograd, was actually the capital of the Russian Empire up until the Soviet era. So this is where the seat of power is, this is where the czar is, and this is where the revolutions will be taking place. And Anna Akhmatova was present for the most important ones. In 1917, at the very end of Russia's involvement in World War I, we have two revolutions. You're probably already familiar with the October Revolution, which is when the Soviets took power, uh, but you may not be as aware of the February Revolution of the same year. So that's sometimes known as the bourgeois revolution, and it's actually that revolution which leads the Tsar to abdicate power. Uh, Tsar Nicholas II is actually not the last Tsar. He tries to bump that one over to his cousin, or I think it's his uncle. You just don't want that on your resume. Like, that's <laughs> tough to come back from. Yeah. Last yeah. Tsar. And then Netflix is going to make a series out of you, and it's just the whole thing. So the end of the February Revolution leads to a provisional uh, post-Tsar government. It's known as the bourgeois government. It includes many political elements, uh, liberals who are known as cadets, Mensheviks, uh, social revolutionaries known as Aceres, and even some members of the Bolshevik party. However, the Bolsheviks were not seeing the kind of progress they wanted through this system. So in, later that year, in October, they staged the October Revolution. And Akhmatova had a first person view of all of these things happening. She was there in the city on both days and just kind of walked around and saw things going on. And this obviously begins to uh, affect the way she writes. She stays in Petersburg through the Civil War until 1923. And in kind of important of what is to come, her now ex-husband Gumilev is arrested in 1921 by the Bolsheviks and executed for allegedly anti-Bolshevik activity. This kind of shocks her and it's at this point where she begins to sour on the Soviet Union. There's not a whole lot of evidence that she was ever super big on the Bolsheviks, but this very early incident really set her onto a path where she was not a big fan of the new government. In the coming years after the Bolsheviks take power, Akhmatova is kind of unwilling to adapt to the new forms of poetry, which are taking precedence. Uh, Akhmatova was a member of what is known as the Acmeist group of, of poets, which was a movement which comprised many things, but they kind of were rejecting some of the older less concrete romanticism of older eras and we're tying it a lot their concepts a lot to kind of physical embodiments of the best thing possible what acme means essentially however in the early soviet union they were super big on uh, more avant-garde styles of art uh, so she was kind of on the outs of that the avant-garde would later be purged but for the time it's around this time that she also writes uh, lot's wife in 1924 in this early era where she begins to kind of not be able to get work. She doesn't have a lot of money. Her son Lev is not able to get into good schooling in the later 20s because he's associated with her and also and also his father Nikolai Gumilev. And then we enter the 30s. And here goes the second detour, uh, the purges. You might be vaguely familiar with the terror or the purges or whatever you know them as. Uh, however, it's not like there was just one big long for 20 years under Stalin murder rampant everywhere. Obviously, it wasn't a super uh, great time to be uh, an opponent of the state. Uh, however, the purges kind of came and went in waves. In the 1930s, we've got two major purges. There are the 1932 to 1935 purges, which were mostly a purge of the upper 
party echelons, primarily focused on Bolsheviks. And then there are the Great Purges, which happens between 1936 and 1938, which not only affected the Bolshevik Party itself or the Communist Party at this point, but also leaders of industry everywhere in the Soviet Union. And it's in these years that Akhmatova's friends also begin to be arrested, liquidated, etc., especially her close friend Osip Mandelstam, uh, for whom she will write a poem. And her own son, Lev, is arrested intermittently throughout this period. Um, in fact, he is slated to be arrested. However, uh, the Great Purge ends with the arrest of the head of the NKVD, who is at that point himself accused of being a wrecker and basically... Uh, the way of getting out of the Great Purges for the Bolshevik leadership at this point was, wow, that went way too far. and That's the head of the NKVD's fault, so we're going to shoot him. Mm-hmm. And so that mm-hmm. earns Lev a stay of, um, stay of execution, but he is still sentenced to Siberia. And throughout the next 10, 15 years, Akhmatova will be helping her son out as he's in and out of prison. She will often come to the prison yard to bring him parcels of food, etc., and waits in line with other people who are there to see their loved ones who are incarcerated. And it's this experience standing out in lines just waiting to even hear about what's happening to their loved ones that she begins to talk with and notice the people around her, which leads her into writing the Requiem Cycle, which is more or less about the purges, or primarily the purges from the perspective of the people uh, who are left behind. And obviously there's a lot more of Akhmatova's work we could talk about and her life, but this is the context which you need specifically for the poems we'll be reading today. So because the poems are relatively short, we're going to be reading the entirety of Song of the Final Meaning and Lot's Wife as we talk about them. Requiem being a whole poem cycle, we obviously can't, but we'll be reading what we can. So we're going to go in chronological order, starting with Song of the Final Meaning, written in Tsarskaya Selo in 1911. Oh, and before we go on, uh, also, this is my own translation, so if this does not sound like the version that you are reading, that's why. I'm, I'm not a, a poet. I was doing a very literal translation, and I was trying to, like... Brag about it. He's become a poet. He's become a poet. <laughs> that's what I've heard. <laughs> I wanted to match the format of the original, so I'm not really going for rhyme or, like, matching the meter here. I'm just trying to match the, the literal text as, as close as possible. Hit it. Helplessly, my chest grew cold then. But my footsteps were easy. Onto my right hand, I pulled on the glove meant for my left. It seemed that there were many steps, but I knew there were only three. Between maple trees and autumn whisper asked, Die with me. I am betrayed by my rueful, fickle, evil fate. I answered, Dear, dear, I am as well. I'll die with you. This is the song of a final meeting. I glanced at the dark house. Only in the bedroom did candles burn. Indifferently, with yellow flame. Keep in mind that Akhmatova wrote that at about age 22, which, um, in terms of love poetry written around age 22, that, that about scans. It rings true for, even at the most superficial level, some emotions I was feeling at 22. I don't really like the criticism that was thrown at her by mm. the Soviets and by, not even just the Soviets, there's like scholars, not today, but like, let's say slightly older male scholars who have said, basically, you don't need to concern yourself with Akhmatova because it's just uh, a silly girl writing silly love poems. But I, I think this poem actually has a lot of poetic value. It's probably her most famous one, actually. The line, I pulled the glove from my left hand onto my right, is based on the class that I took on Akhmatova, a line that most Russians would be familiar with. And, well, that's not the only line that I like. There's a lot in this poem that actually I enjoyed quite a lot. What sticks out to you? I'm curious. Well, to me, I think like the fact that we're calling it a love poem <laughs> when it's about a breakup <laughs> is funny. 
Um, <clears throat> I, yep, yep. I, there's not really love here, for instance. There's somebody who was in love with somebody, and it's now ended. The final meeting, if you will, if I, if I may. I'll allow it. Thank you. Uh, so what, what I like stylistically here is the fact that there's a lot of things that kind of could seem cliche, but don't actually come across cliche. In my experience, at least this is how it is in the Russian. You might think the autumn trees pleading to die with them is kind of cliche in young adult-esque in the English translation, but I, I would argue it doesn't quite come across that way in the Russian. And so I'm going to excuse that stanza because that's hard to, that's a hard side to take, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, of details that are packed into... The, it's it's a very short poem. Each line is very short, and there's a lot of details to kind of read between the lines, I think. Or maybe if you just analyze between the lines, maybe they're not actually there, and I just have it in my head that they are. For instance, the idea that the candles in the bedroom were burning with an indifferent yellow flame. Oh, I love that line. That is such a good line to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to jump around the poem because that's, that's just kind of how my brain works. Go for it. I'm curious to hear what you... Uh what do you overall take out of it? The reason I wanted to cover this poem was because it is a more famous one in general. And it's a big contrast to the ones that we're about to read. So it, it's got some some good progression. I think you can see how she takes the fact that she was really skilled with poetry at such a young age and then applies that to perhaps more serious, I guess, social issues. I don't know how to compare them exactly. So so for me, I mean, the the candles burning in the bedroom how does she know it's the bedroom so for instance you know that she would have had to have been in the bedroom so you know that you have uh, some sort of sexually charged relationship between the narrator and the person in the bedroom the flames that are burning with this indifferent yellow flame this was an, an interesting compound adjective for me indifferent yellow i like that a lot to me it makes me wonder is it the candles burning with that flame or is it a reflection of the person in the room that has that mm. sort of indifference Right. And so this one, I don't know, these two lines, I liked them a lot. No, that makes sense. I can see why. They're fun. <laughs> I think there also is something about the commonality of all of the actions in this poem that makes it stand out. Nothing in it is super specific to the relationship of the narrator or to any relationship per se. So she's able to capture on this universal underlying feeling of a lot of relationships, I think. The line where she says there seemed to be many steps as she was walking away, but I knew there were only three. This sense of being caught up in your own head, but you already know leaving this house as if it's second nature to you. It shows a lot about how the narrator has had such a long-standing relationship. I mean, the title clearly hints at it. If it's the last meeting, of course, there were more meetings, but I think you can tell that this was something that meant a lot to the narrator. I also wanted to point out, this isn't captured in the way I translated it, but in the original Russian... It's a, I think, as you mentioned, it's a pretty compact poem. Mm -hmm. There's not a single line which goes over five words. In fact, most of them are only four words in the Russian. Um, and also it has kind of, um, it has kind of an A-B rhyming scheme and a sort of mm -hmm. consistent meter throughout, which is something in most English versions you won't necessarily see. I, and the couple different translations I found online and read, I, it seems to me that people more so tend to try to reflect the feeling the poem is trying to evoke more so than being necessarily literally true to what Akhmatova herself wrote. Yeah, I don't think the rhyme scheme is that important to maintain when you translate it, to be completely honest. I think like you would find it too constricting to try and do it in English if you were to keep the rhyme. Well, I see a lot of people try to try to recreate the rhyme, rhyme scheme. 
in some format, which is which leads them to away from like a literal version of the poem. Yeah, I, it would be really difficult to make. I mean, obviously, I'm not a professional translator, but I think it would be really difficult to maintain a rhyme scheme and the nuanced meaning of each word. Yeah, perhaps yeah. Uh, you could include it in a footnote, I would say. That is kind of the big one, the difference between alteration. And I guess we'll talk more about this later because there is a very specific yeah, example yeah. I noticed. But um, the difference in ways people try to convey information that is not obvious to a non-native speaker. Yeah, I just think it's not really that important, the rhyme scheme, unless you're mm. unless it's doing something specific in the poem, which uh, I, I don't know that it necessarily is here. I think it has to do more with the time it was written. If you're studying like yeah. uh, the history of poems and you're tracing what schools of poets are uh, maintaining rhyme schemes and which ones are not, then that's interesting. And there, are, I mean, there are some interesting things that she does here, where she has like certain words that aren't, you know, she kind of develops some almost like Russian slant rhymes towards the end. You have dom and agnum, which are like close but not perfect rhymes. So it's, it it can be interesting, but I think that you'd have to really, really be into learning Russian, like some people on this podcast, or <laughs> to uh, go into it too much more. Yeah, that's fair. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah, I think that basically captures this poem. It's it's Akhmatova herself referring to this collection later on questioned, not entirely differently from what the Soviet critics said. She wondered why it had been, had been reprinted so many times because they were naive poems from a vacuous girl. Which, given what she later went through, I can see how why early poetry about not less serious things, but in light of like what would later happen, I could see who maybe would come to that conclusion about your own writing. Yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah, we'll get into it. I, I understand it. Yeah, I still think it's a good poem, but I understand it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about Lot's wife. All right, so Lot's wife. It starts with a quotation from the book of Genesis, which is where the story of Lot's wife comes from. Lot's wife looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. Book of Genesis. And then the poem. And the righteous man followed the envoy of God, huge and bright over the black mountain. But anguish spoke loudly to his wife. It's not too late, you can still gaze. At the red towers of your native Sodom. At the square where you sang, at the courtyard where you spun. At the empty windows of the tall house where you bore your children to your beloved husband. She glanced and paralyzed by deadly pain. Her eyes no longer saw anything, and her body became transparent salt, and her quick feet were rooted to the spot. Who will weep for this woman? Isn't her death the least significant? But my heart will never forget the one who gave her life for a single glance. What a poem. <laughs> what a poem. What a poem. And this was 1924, so this was a, a good bit after Song of the Final Meeting, but a good bit before Requiem. And just to remind everyone of the context, this is, of course, a year after the uh, USSR has officially come into being. Uh, the Reds have won the Civil War. And perhaps most importantly for Akhmatova, um, they've begun changing the power systems within Petersburg itself. And obviously, Petersburg at this point is now Leningrad. I'll just say this was dicey as shit to publish in 1924. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think she only skated by because the censors at this point probably didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but I don't know. <laughs> it seems pretty explicit to me. <laughs> yeah, it's very, not explicitly, but just right on the border of being explicitly about her own relationship to Petersburg and, and looking back on a city, which, and maybe more so a past, which she can no longer really stay in without becoming paralyzed. So I more took it as a, more more as a punishment 
for looking mm-hmm. back. I think by okay. this time you'd be reaching the point where everyone's talking about how do we move forward? How do we detach ourselves from the past? And and of course, with poetry at this time, you have a lot of competing art schools, but all of them are very, very radical. Primarily, I think the one that this is in the most relevant conversation with would, well, there's several of her poems that are in conversation with this, but uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky, a famous futurist poet, he wrote a poem called uh, 150 Million, and it's about the, the strength of the, the Russian people and the revolution. And Vladimir Lenin absolutely hated this poem. He has a lot of f- funny things, and he really hated the futurists. <laughs> a side tangent uh, on <laughs> futurism, because I love to study futurists. But I, I think this poem is interesting because it's the exact opposite of 150 Million. It's following the ethical implications of one person looking back. And Akhmatova here is kind of saying that she feels like she's going to be punished by looking back to the past. But at the same time, she can't help but make room in her heart for the woman who did look back all the same. Yes, of course. And it's really interesting. I mean, <laughs> when you think of Sodom in biblical terms, it's not something that's has a positive connotation for sure. But in this poem, it does. I mean, the fact that it's called native Sodom, for one... Mm is already indicating that there's going to be something positive. Mm-hmm. And uh, all, all she does in Sodom is sing, spins. Uh, she's got a house. She's got children, a husband who loves her. It's not bad. Not that bad. Right. I wonder if this reflects maybe, <clears throat> maybe I'm reading too deeply into this, because obviously the Bolsheviks had a lot to say about what came before in Petersburg and uh, the Russian mm-hmm. Empire as a whole. I wonder if this is a reflection of her feeling even though like an envoy of God is leading you onward towards like what you truly should be doing, she can't help but look back on what she was told was, you know, evil and bad. And even if that is something that she can no longer have, and by looking back, she's, you know, could face some sort of punishment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in the first stanza that there's a lot of big, bright language following the man. He's he's righteous. He's following the envoy of God. He's huge. He's bright. Uh, He's following it over a mountain. And meanwhile, you have his wife who's not really doing anything except being spoken to by anguish. She actually doesn't do anything in this poem. She only performs one single action, which is glancing, which I thought was super interesting. There's some literary critics who have categorized Akhmatova as a a poet of Christianity and asceticism, and there's a lot of those references in her poetry. For me, I would probably categorize her as a poet of restraint, uh, mm. not only in self-restraint, but also the feeling of just being restrained. And I think this comes through a lot in the poem based on the fact that she literally only does, or not Ahmatova herself, but the narrator literally only does one thing, and then she is severely punished by it within the same line. Right. But that's just my reading of it. Apparently, I have very strong feelings on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's interesting because... Basically, yeah, it's, that's all. That is all she does, and it takes like a single moment from the Bible, at least, and the the actual story of Lod and his and his family's exodus from Sodom. You're not getting the internal life of any of these characters for the most part. But mm-hmm. this, and Akhmatova's retelling, it centers on one single moment and just tries to take a human element into what it takes to look back on what you're leaving. She introduces so much meaning into that one single look just through a couple of lines of memory of what Sodom meant to this woman and how she's a single woman. She's just one single person. And is she not the least of our losses in the light of, for example, Sodom, which is about to be 
H-bombed off the face of the earth, or Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever the biblical equivalent of (laughs) H-bombs are. Uh, (laughs) uh, And, you know, even in the face of the fact that this is an insignificant loss, as um, our friend Yosef might say, but still, this is where her heart lies, in that one loss, uh, in that one memory of what was. Yeah, and that's why I kind of think it's a such an oppositional poem to be written at this time to talk about the value of one single life as opposed to the group, the greater collective. And I like it. I think it's a good poem. I agree. I had a lot of fun reading this and kind of taking it apart. And also, uh, let me just say, translating this one was just... (laughs) Not as easy. (laughs) My boss speaks Russian. And there's like one part at the end of the poem, uh, the line... I sent this to Matt earlier this morning, actually. Does she not appear to be the least of our losses? But in Russian, it's Nimenshi Limnitsiana is Utrat. And I showed that line to my boss, who's a native Russian speaker, and she looked at that and was like, I don't know what that says. <laughs> she was like, I left, I left Russia when I was 14. I don't, I, I, I didn't keep up with my literary studies. And you said you left at 14 and you didn't already have a book of poetry, you <laughs> absolute slacker. <laughs> you weren't reading up on archaic ways of saying Kajitsa at age 14. <laughs> It's archaic or if it's just poetic. That's where I struggle. Is there a, a strong line between the two? Not necessarily. <laughs> but that's a subject for our bonus Watch us <laughs> <laughs> live translate a poem. <laughs> that would be an absolute shit show. You realize how much of it is me relying on the index and not actually knowing how to translate <laughs> or knowing the language that I supposedly study. It would uh, also reveal my uh, critical addiction to Wiktionary. Oh, yeah. That's how yeah. I find out if it's actually an archaic form. <laughs> That's the secret to translation. Yandex translate in Wiktionary. Yep. Don't, don't tell them. Don't tell them. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll bleep that out so they don't <laughs> pay for the bonus episode. We'll tell you the secret. <laughs> <laughs> tell you all the secrets of how to get a PhD. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to our final cycle, Requiem, which is 10 poems in addition to an opening paragraph, and then some other kind of outros. So we won't be reading all of it, but we will be kind of going through the general feelings it evokes. Actually, I think we should... Let's read the introduction. It's relatively short, and it gives you a good idea of what it's really about. It begins with this epigraph. No, not under the vault of another sky, not under the shelter of other wings. I was with my people then, there where my people were doomed to be. 1961. And the following section is titled instead of a foreword. During the terrible years of Yezovshina, I spent 17 months in the prison queues in Leningrad. One day, someone recognized me. Then a woman with lips blue with cold, who was standing behind me, and of course had never heard of my name, came out of the numbness which affected us all, and whispered in my ear. We all spoke in whispers there. Can you describe this? I said, I can. Then something resembling a smile slipped over what had once been her face. 1st April, 1957, Leningrad. Uh, Yezhov was the head of Stalin's secret police in the 1930s who was himself purged for um, the charge of being a wrecker, I believe, because of his zealousness in pursuing the purges. This was a tough read, I gotta be honest. I thought I was desensitized to, like... Not that I was, not that I was completely desensitized to gulag literature, per se, but just having read a lot of it mm-hmm. over my, my many years... I, I kind of thought that, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be fine to read this, whatever. I spent like hours reading this before the podcast and I was just like, huh, yeah. it's tough. 
it was a lot of a it was a much different perspective than reading about somebody who was going through uh, the purges firsthand and reading about someone like watching everyone they love go through it and not knowing what was happening was it's pretty tough yeah and the action of this happens in cycles it's it's a lot of short poems and it's her dealing with over time these are not all written at once the arrest of her son the imprisonment of her friends and then just the grief of that and also attempts to move on because the only choice she has is to keep living you see her wrestling with that in different ways throughout the poem uh, very early on i want to read this is poem number three this is a very early attempt to deal with that and essentially what she's doing is just repressing all emotions related to that uh, and she writes no this is not me someone else suffers i wouldn't be able to so what happened let the black curtains cover and let them take the streetlights night she can't even face what happened she just doesn't even want to think about it and just asks that the black curtains cover up the room and take away the streetlights so nothing can be seen and just let night be all there is essentially and that i guess you could call it despair is just hard to read without being forced to sit back and, and assess your surroundings a little bit yeah i don't know what you had in your notes but i said that this what I had researched said that this took her over three decades to write, that it was written between 1935 and 1961. Yes, I had the same. That's a long time to... And this is a relatively short poem cycle. Um, it's only, uh, what, like 10 poems and a foreword? Mm -hmm. And like it's not that many poems. I try to imagine her trying to put some of these thoughts into words, and that's tough. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I want to go back up to the intro for a second. I think there's more to talk about in other poems, but mm -hmm. I think it's interesting just in the way that she describes in the foreword the cues. And she mentions that while they're on the cues, there's kind of a numbness which affects them all, and they're they're blue with cold, and they don't appear to really acknowledge each other beyond you know some quiet whispers. Uh, and I read an, an article about this which pointed out on the the way grief is portrayed in this that grief here is not just it's not just a solitary act because you have had a loved one taken from you. It's a, a solitary thing because it is cutting you off from the people around you. And it's mm -hmm. not until this moment where someone recognizes Akhmatova as, as, a, as a famed poet of one time and, you know, asks her, is it even possible to describe this? And, you know, Akhmatova says, I can. And I think it's hard to capture in English exactly. In Russian, she says, Mogu, just like a very direct yes basically i've seen this directed like translate several ways but there's just something about just in one word yes this can be captured that kind of connects these two women for a second over their mutual tragedy which up until that point they've just been dealing with alone even though they're with presumably dozens of people at this time for hours per day yeah i don't want to get too much into the linguistics of it but i find the compactness of her language very compelling in a way that you would expect a, a long book to take many years to write, I can see why something like this to really portray what must have been a very compact amount of emotions in a short period of time must have been difficult to figure out how to write. Yeah. Um, I also liked, I don't know, I liked a lot of the religious imagery in this. I thought it was interesting. It's not something right. you would typically think about with like quote unquote Soviet writers, I guess. Even in the very first poem, Bolanihev says, A candle flared, illuminating the mother of God. The cold of an icon was on your lips. A death-cold sweat. Uh, just, I, I guess, setting up the, the comparison of 
mother of God, Jesus, crucifixion. It kind of, I guess, like kind of follows a similar structure in some ways. This cycle very literally ends on crucifixion. Poem 10, mm-hmm. the last poem before the epilogue, is titled Crucifixion. Right. And like Lot's Wife, it's a sort of retelling or just a straightforward telling, actually, of the crucifixion. Of course, in this case, centering Mary Magdalene. Yeah, like Ahmadova does like an interesting thing where she kind of, it's kind of like her retelling of some like parts of the Bible with her own ethical messaging, which may or may not be in those passages of the Bible, I guess, depending on how you personally read it. But I, I think it's interesting. It's part of what makes her so significant to read. I mean, I, I just am a really big fan of the way that she's able to, like, not significantly changing the source tales at all, able to bring a whole new dimension. In, in part mm-hmm. two of the poem Crucifixion, she writes, Mary Magdalene smote her breast and wept. The disciple whom he loved turned to stone. But where the mother stood in silence, nobody even dared look. She's done very little with it, and yet she's instilled with so much meaning of mm-hmm. this sort of the solitariness of what it is like to have a son taken from you, and she's in, in, in grief, in, in silence, and no one can even look her in the eye. It's not something that I personally thought that much of, this idea of looking, mm. probably a year or two ago, but as I've been doing a lot of reading for, for my program, because that's what they make me do all the time is read. <laughs> Ridiculous, I know. Um, there's just so, actually like a lot written on ethical implications of looking and eyes like they're very important and a, a lot of imagery and a lot of writing and maybe you're listening to me and thinking yeah you idiot of course they're important um <laughs> but the whole thing of lot's wife was that she was punished for just the one act of looking and at this point in this poem cycle she's saying nobody can even look at me and that's you get kind of the inverse ethical assumption here of that being a problem yeah, I mean, there's actually, there's one thing which can look her in the eye. In poem number five, which begins, For 17 months I have been screaming, calling you home. I flung myself at the executioner's feet. You are my son and my terror. Everything is confused forever, and I can no longer tell beast from man, and how long I must wait for the execution. And then it goes on for a little bit before ending on, An enormous star looks me straight in the eye and threatens swift destruction. I believe, this is unsubstantiated, that she's referring to the Kremlin stars, which were erected in the 1930s, and it's five ruby red stars which were erected around the Kremlin to replace the imagery of the Russian Empire that had formerly been there. Over time, there would be more red stars put up around uh, Moscow, which you can still see today. They've, they upkeep them, they light them up at night. They're actually very pretty. But in this case, it, it's a representative of the immense power that the Bolshevik, well, at this point that the Stalinist government has over her life. And this is, as getting to your idea of what can actually look at her, I mm-hmm. think this is the only thing in the poem that, that it is specifically mentioned looks her in the eye. Yeah, and it's not even a person. Yeah. As this whole poem five is dealing with, like, who is an animal and who is a person and what actions do they actually perform throughout the poem. Yeah. I got to think, like, those stars must have been super intimidating in 1935 when they were put up. <laughs> I mean, they were, like, really in your face today when there were also a lot of other big buildings and whatnot in moscow but yeah in the 1930s i gotta imagine those were like a lot (laughs) yeah i mean especially given that they i think this is written in 1939 so some of the other ones have gone up at this point but still the main five would be the kremlin ones (laughs) and she previously makes reference to you know wanting to scream at the walls of the kremlin like the wives of the murdered streltsy 
Um, mm -hmm. So <laughs> she was obviously not a Muscovite. She wasn't literally like watching these stars because they weren't in Petersburg, but they're present in her mind and in mm -hmm. her psyche enough that even all the way from Moscow, however many miles away, it's like an overnight ride by train. It's it's there. It's it's present and it's looking and staring her down. Yeah, this this whole collection, I just like every single. I want to just read the whole thing out on the podcast because every single poem <laughs> has something to like, kind of tear apart and like has just a mm -hmm. like a great line that's just stuck with me all day. Yeah, I realize it's really difficult to talk about a poem collection. Probably, it, it really is something that you can read very quickly and it can stick with you, like you said, for a long time. This is definitely something that's stuck with me all day. As I've yeah. read and reread it, and finding new things each time has been—I uh, I guess I wouldn't say fun necessarily—but <laughs> it's, it's been something. It's been enjoyable, I guess. It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I every single poem has just a line that just sticks out to you, and it, mm -hmm. it captures so much emotion in the way that she's dealing with the immediate aftermath of, of someone in her life being taken as many people were of the, like the long-term effects at one point, I believe it's poem seven. She says, I have, I have work to do. I must kill my memory. I must, so my soul can turn to stone. I must learn to live again. And, you know, or else I will have to face coming back for a long time, even on bright days, coming back to an empty house and just this cycle of, you know, an eternity of, of losing more people and learning to live with that grief is just, it's it's powerful and it's hard to read and it just sticks with you and mm -hmm. this is free online so i would highly recommend that you look it up <laughs> or spend many years of your life learning russian so that you can then read it in russian yeah or that i'm gonna start your own podcast where you can talk about how bad <laughs> the translations are <laughs> so to that point not every translation is made equal yes um i don't think we're in a position to make a, ne a recommendation necessarily but uh, what I will say is that the edition I am reading, I'm not certain who the translator is, they have footnotes for certain things, and they use that to explain some things in the text, which are not immediately apparent to English speakers, where I've seen some other translations try to integrate that into the poem. Uh, for example, there is a line where Akhmatova writes, I will howl by the Kremlin Towers, like the wives of the Streltsy. And in this version, it has a little, you know, uh, cross and says, oh, here's where the Streltsy were and, you know, why they were executed. Whereas in another version I read, they integrated that into the line itself and instead wrote, I will howl like the wives of the murdered Streltsy at the Kremlin Towers, which, although it kind of conveys the same emotion and, and gets basically at what you need to know without necessarily knowing who the Streltsy are, it is, of course, pushing you further away from what Akhmatova actually wrote. Mm -hmm. I hate when people add stuff into it. Just put it in a footnote. You got plenty of space <laughs> at the bottom of the page. That's what I found. A lot of these poems, when I read them in English, I was like, this is like really flowery. This is very, this is something I really associate with like English poetry. And I would mm -hmm. go and read Akhmatova's and she's obviously very direct and pretty, pretty sparse with her words. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting thing that you don't necessarily capture in translation. But I mean, for the most part, they're fine. I think that yeah. these are small quibbles I'm bringing up, you know, adding one bit about the Streltsy being murdered does not ruin the poem. But it is something that I think is worth taking note of. Just read more than one. See where they differ. Yeah, that's another good idea. Well, I, I think we could keep going on this forever, but uh, in the interest of saving uh, you, me, and our audience time, yeah, yeah, we're happy to talk about this more. If you, of course, join our Discord, there's a link on our Instagram page, and it'll bring you to a link tree where you can join our Discord. I will totally be happy to talk more about this poem cycle with you because I just am probably going to go read this again later tonight. 
Yeah, I'll probably be in there talking by myself about the pump cycle just because that's kind of what I do <laughs> in my free time. <laughs> that's why we have this podcast. That's right. Uh, Cameron, I got to ask, though, did you, yes. did you did you make it up to scale from a one to Yeltsin? <laughs> did you? Did you? Un- unfortunately, my, my green tea slash uh, sparkling ice drink combo mm. uh, did mm. not bring me up very far in the one to Yeltsin scale. I would say as a whole... I am probably about so there's like an old Soviet propaganda poster which is in like a teetotaling one it's like this well-dressed guy at dinner and someone's trying to hand him a glass of what's presumably vodka or some kind of alcohol and he just has like just stone-faced handout yet um and that's mm-hmm. my favorite piece of Soviet propaganda and that's yeah. about I think on the scale where I am but what about you how drunk are you I'm probably uh, the point in the poem where the girl's putting the glove on her wrong hand uh, for me, it's not because I've just had my heart broken, but instead because I've had too much peanut butter whiskey. <laughs> that's that's understandable. I can see I've I've been there. Yeah, we all have. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, what are we reading next week then? Oh, I'm so excited for this. I wanted to read this for a while. We're going to be reading the first half of We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. Basically, the first dystopian book in in world literature goes on to influence 1984 animal farm anything that you've heard about in the west more or less comes from this book so bring your dystopian government you're probably living in one uh, bring it along to next week's discussion we can uh, <laughs> we can talk about it then <laughs> exactly uh, matt's been talking about this forever and if you notice if you've been to our website to see our about us page that is in fact listed as his favorite book so he's got at least several months to prove that this is a true statement when he says it's his favorite book. Yep, 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 yep. I wish we could have covered it sooner, but, you know. Here we are. The boys of the network, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, the, just those suits upstairs. Those suits upstairs. Keeping us yeah, down, making us read Akhmatova. I know. I know. Yeah, well... <laughs> Now, before we get going, we wanted to, again, extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We got Jeff, Janice, and Madeline, Gary, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting is not free, believe it or not, and grad school, uh, I believe this, does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to help keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. There's something in it for you, we promise. Oh, there definitely is. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website. Website, I keep saying that. <laughs> or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>